Hello, writers. I'm Grant Faulkner, and I'm here with my very good friend, Brooke Warner. And Brooke, speaking of friendship, uh, after reading Jean Chen Ho's wonderful novel, Fiona and Jane, I've been thinking about friendship in general, you know, the often, you know, dramatic role that friendship can play in life, especially over a lifetime, and then the role of friendship as a subject of stories in particular. And Brooke, I want to run a theory by you. This isn't well thought out, but I recently got into this discussion on Facebook with a friend who posted her 2021 reading list online. And she included an all-time favorite of mine, Alana Ferrante's Neapolitan series of four novels, uh, really focused on two characters, Elena and Lila, and their very intriguing and fraught and beautiful relationship over a lifetime. And I loved how the novels explored the many facets of their friendships. And I, I mentioned in the Facebook post how few adult novels, at least, are truly centered in friendship as the primary subject. And my, my, you know, my friend mentioned that she's been immersed in stories about friends because the stories she reads to her young children are largely about friends. And I thought, yeah, that's because friendship is as powerful as love and romance to kids. It's the one thing, one of the main things they're experiencing. But then friendship often takes a more secondary place in adult fiction because other dramatic subjects tend to eclipse it, like love and family dramas or war and addiction and crime and all of that fun stuff. So I'm curious, what's your take on the role of friendship in fiction, Brooke? And is my theory right that adult fiction tends to, unfortunately, ignore it? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a very valid theory, Grant. You know, it makes complete sense to me. Friendship is so central to our lives, um, but obviously maybe more acute as kids. Um, I do want to say, though, that some of my favorite books are about friendships, notably Sula by Toni Morrison, which Jean is going to also say uh, in the interview is an inspiration for her book, which shouldn't have been surprising to me. Um, I read that book in college. I mean, Sula and so many of Toni Morrison's books have inspired so many writers, um, you know, an entire generation, honestly. Uh, and I think there are a lot of books that have friendship in them, like you said, um, but not necessarily that center them. So I was just, you know, kind of mulling over the books that I particularly love that have been like doorways to me, though, that were friendship centered. Uh, Truth and Beauty by Anne Patchett, which is about her friendship with the writer Lucy Greeley. And that was a book that introduced me to Anne, you know, and wow, it's such a tremendous memoir. And lately, I feel like I've been keyed into these friendship subplots, you know, in the memoirs that I'm reading, um, in part because I went through a breakup last year. And I think you do invariably turn to friendships during those in-between relationship moments. That's certainly something that's been true for me. Um, you kind of have to shore up your friends, you know. So right now I'm particularly interested in that. And I'm I'm listening to Ashley C. Ford's memoir, Somebody's Daughter, mm-hmm. on audio. And no one would say that that book is about friendship, but her friends play a supremely important role in her sense of self, uh, settling into her identity in these years. And, you know, these are her young years. And so maybe that kind of circles right back to your point because she's writing a coming of age memoir. Um, and so, yeah, like when you think about friendship, it it definitely has this outsized importance for kids, you know, a, a lot of kids, even over family. So it, yeah, it's just the, the social fabric of kids' lives. And I think adults want to read about friendship, you know, after all, it does continue to be that fabric, but it starts to get a little frayed, I guess, for, for some people as we get older. Yeah, I'm especially intrigued because as I get older, friendships take on an interesting life and, and and mystery in my own life. You know, like I wonder why some friendships last and others don't. 
why some feel like they deserve their own couples counseling or divorce court or maybe a marriage ceremony. Right. And then, you know, some come and go serving different eras and different needs. And, you know, some depend on a proximity of place or a shared experience, but then they go no further. I personally feel like one of the blessings of my life is that I have an abundance of friendships. Uh, but I recently read that male friendships are in a state of crisis. The number of American men who view themselves as having no close friends quintupled over the last 30 years, increasing from 3% in 1990 to 15% in 2021, which is pretty high. I think that mm -hmm. 15% of men don't feel like they've got a close friendship. And female friendships have also taken a hit over the years, but their decline was less dramatic. 10% of women say they have no close friends at all. And yeah, it's like a whole, you know, I was thinking about this. It's, it's like, you know, while total friends on social media platforms have probably gone up, our closer friendships have maybe dwindled. And I don't know if the two are connected, but it's worth thinking about. So just on this subject of, of the state of the contemporary friendship, Brooke, you know, I was curious if you know of any books that take different um, angles on friendship, you know, that are about friendship, uh, but coming from an angle like how to or friendship breakups. Yeah, I mean, I've actually paid attention to that idea that there's like a crisis in, in male friendships because I've raised boys, <laughs> you know, I mm. have the two 20 something stepsons and James, who's 11. And I do think that friendship crisis is is very real. I mean, I see it in my friend's husband sometimes, um, and it can be concerning to me just to witness people who don't really have friends. And as a woman, you know, who sometimes hangs out with friends whose husbands don't have friends, then their wives' social lives become their only source of social life and sometimes happiness. Um, and then they don't have any outlets. And I think, you know, I do think there's something to be looked at there. I, I don't know that I have opinions about it, but it's noticeable. And then as a parent, I've watched friendships, you know, I mean, I'm curious about the kids and how their friendships are going, uh, in part because I think it's a barometer for their confidence and their sense of place. So I've always been curious about it with all three boys. Um, and luckily, they, they all three have done pretty well with their friendships. So I'm grateful for that. Uh, but I, you know, we're increasingly isolated as a society. What you mentioned about social platforms, I mean, I'm sure that plays a role in it. And then it's really hard to make new friends if you go to a new place. And there's been a ton of movement lately. You know, people are just moving around and it can take a while to grow roots in a new place. Um, but it's also interesting to me that during the pandemic, I, I made new friends, notably with neighbors, you know, that I probably never would have made such close friends with if it hadn't been for the pandemic. Um, so as you said, you know, friendship can be circumstantial or about place. And in the case of my pandemic pod, we were three families thrust together in a pretty intimate way. And that had 100% to do with the fact that we all had fourth grade boys last year. So thankfully, that worked out great. And I consider those families to be among my closest friends now. But, you know, it's it's just interesting to look at. But I love that you asked for recommendations about some different angles on books, because yes, like I also think women write a lot about friendship, maybe more than men. I'm not sure. I'd be interested to see if there's a correlation there. We have a wonderful anthology on She Writes called uh, Dumped by Nina Gabby. And that's about ending friendships, mm. <laughs> you know, in all the ways that women get dumped or have dumped their friends. So, you know, acknowledging how much 
friendships can be like relationships and are like relationships. And then I spent so many years at Seal Press, as people know, you know, eight years acquiring books at Seal, a women's press. And we did a fair number of books about friendship. And I know you're certainly talking about fiction and maybe to your point, you know, the the few that I just referenced here, none of them are fiction. But you know, how about you? Any memorable titles that have been about friendship that you've just thought like this has been moving or affecting in some way? Yeah, interesting qualification there that I am really thinking about fiction in particular and, and the types of drama that draw people to write about or publish. And when I think of my favorite friendship stories or novels, they are nearly all by or about women, which I think perhaps speaks to this crisis. You know, men, men don't seem inclined to write about friendship the way that women do. And I mentioned Elena Ferrante, and I'll just keep mentioning her because she's really the gold standard to me and the, the author who sparked these thoughts for me. Um, her novel series, uh, which begins with My Brilliant Friend, you know, it really does. And it's interesting that you mentioned Dumped because her books read with the obsession of a lover. And in fact, the two girls' relationships, when I think of the novels now, it re- their, their families or husbands or love interests are very much on the periphery of their own involvement with each other. And their their involvement takes on this pretty, you know, extreme competitiveness and rivalry as well, which, which kind of structures the love in a strange way. And Elena narrates the books, but it, but it seems that nothing she does is solely about her, her entire life seems to always be in relation to or because of Lila, um, as if Lila is a son around uh, which Elena orbits. And you kind of wonder who Elena would be without Lila. But going beyond that, I also like The Friend by Sigrid Nunez, one of my favorite authors. And it's about a different type of friendship, that of an unlikely canine friend. But I think that minimizes the book to describe it that way, because it's really about so much more. It's a deep meditation on human connection and loneliness and many other things. And while I was thinking about this show today, I I came up with a handful of novels that are centered in male friendships. You know, I'm thinking of Mice and Men, A Separate Piece, On the Road, The Kite Runner, The Nickel Boys. And I think I started to think about this. and I think a lot of male friendship books have a quest or adventure at the center of them, much like Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer. So the friendship is is grounded in an activity or a pursuit rather than an ongoing conversation and evolution of a relationship over a lifetime. That feels right, but I'd have to do an actual study to figure it out. Do you know of of other books that specifically address men's friendships, Brooke? Well, one of the most powerful books of friendship I've read actually um, is also one I listened to by John O'Donohue um, called Anamkara. Again, it's, you know, it's nonfiction. So maybe that's also the, the stuff we've read. You can see, like, I, th- I think you de- definitely tend to read a lot more fiction and I read a lot more nonfiction, but um, Anamkara is Gaelic for soul friend. It's not for men, you know, by any means, but I, I certainly think he has a more broad audience, you know, and that men would gravitate to O'Donohue's work. And in the audio, of course, he brings his lovely Irish accent to his stories. And it's just mesmerizing to be bathed in his words. And then two memoirs that come to mind, Tuesdays with Maury by Mitch Album, which is really a book about the author's deepening friendship with a man who's dying. But of course, that book is framed as a book of life lessons. I think it's about friendship. Uh, And then James Fry, who is a controversial author, you know, his reputation was basically ruined because he lied about so many details um, in both of his memoirs, A Million Little Pieces. And this one, My Friend Leonard, that said, they're both really good books. And it's pretty sad because 
I just think if he had been able to sell them as novels, they could have just been what they are, you know, but I digress just to say that I truly enjoyed My Friend Leonard. It's a it's a really well done book. And then um, a lot of people know that I work closely with my dear friend, Mark Nepo, and he speaks and teaches a lot about friendship. And he's recently finished a book about friendship that he hasn't yet published. Um, but when I told him that we were going to do a, f- a show on friendship, I, uh, he sent me two quotes and I, I wanted to share those. So uh, in the 1800s, Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote, friendship is the masterpiece of nature And then the Renaissance philosopher Pico wrote, friendship is the end of all philosophy. Hmm. Wow. I love both those quotes. The masterpiece of nature is such an interesting way to put it because friendship is an act of creativity in in its way. And that comes through in Fiona and Jane. And one thing I really admire about Fiona and Jane is the structure of the book is made up of individual stories, which are you know, kind of casually linked together. Um, so you, you, you can you can think of them as a novel or as a collection of short stories. I think it's kind of like Jennifer Egan's A Visit from the Goon Squad. And, and what this does for the reading experience is make it more of a textured experience. You know, you experience the characters in periods of togetherness and in periods of distance. In other words, you see you see who they are individually and in relation to each other over time. And you feel the vagaries of time and emotion, how their friendship is a, a constant thread, yet they don't truly know that, especially in the periods when they've grown apart. And now that I have the perspective of the evolution of various friendships, you know, this is the mystery of it all. You know, uh, some powerful friendships in my youth didn't go beyond my youth, yet some have been present and reemerged after going dormant for years. Yeah. And I think that's the nature of friendship. It's powerful how friendship transcends time. And, you know, sometimes those friendships end, uh, how friends, how friends are family, you know, the ups and downs we experience together and is certainly a subject worthy of a literary canon. So I'm super glad you chose this topic, my friend. Thank you. <laughs> and we'll continue the conversation in just a short moment with today's guest, Jean Chen Ho. Welcome back, everybody. I'm thrilled to introduce Jean Chen Ho, our special guest today. And and Jean is a writer in Los Angeles. She was born in Taiwan and grew up in Southern California. She's the author of Fiona and Jane, which just came out and is getting a bunch of amazing attention. She's also a doctoral candidate in creative writing and literature at the University of Southern California. Her writing has been published in a lot of publications, including Guernica, The Rumpus, The Offing, Apogee, McSweeney's, Vita, NPR, and others. And Jean has received scholarships from Kundaman, the Tin House Workshop, Napa Valley Writers Conference, Squaw Valley Community of Writers, and Breadloaf. So, wow, that's a lot. Welcome, Jean, and congrats <laughs> on Fiona and Jane. Hey, Grant. Hey, Brooke. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Welcome. Absolutely. Well, I'm I'm excited to talk to you because I've been very interested in novels about friends. You know, uh, friends are obviously such a huge part of our lives, yet they're they're often not at the dramatic center. Of, uh, of of a novel. And I, I first became a little bit obsessed by this thought when I read uh, Elena Ferrante's Neapolitan series, which is uh, amazing to me for how it details intimacy, love, obsession, and rivalry between two friends while also capturing, you know, this larger community they're living in. And I wondered if, if you thought of any friendship novels while writing this, or perhaps the better question is, you know, what drew you to write about friendship? 
Yeah, I definitely did. So one of the big influences for this book uh, is Sula by Toni Morrison. Uh, Toni Morrison is absolutely my favorite writer. And, uh, you know, Sula um, is, is her novel about two best friends, Sula and Nell. And yeah, I mean, I agree with you. A lot of times we see books or movies, other types of media that really focus on other relationships. I mean, mostly, I guess I would say it's a romantic relationship that is supposed to take precedence in our lives. Mm -hmm. But I also love books about deep friendships because, you know, just in my own life, friendships have been so meaningful, especially long ones. And there's a lot at stake with the friend. So um, I wanted to, I wanted to just really explore that as the main thread in the book, even though, you know, there, we do go on side trips with, family secrets and romantic failures and things like that in Fiona and Jane. Hmm. I'm glad you mentioned Sula. I was thinking about it because Fiona and Jane, like those characters, there's this fierce attachment, you know, and that's what I was, um, you know, I, I also was so moved by that novel when I was young and, you know, at quite a formative place in my life. Um, and you say that Fiona and Jane is not autobiographical, but you've shared that emotional DNA, or sorry, you've said that you share emotional DNA with both Fiona and Jane. So could you elaborate on that? And how did an emotional kinship shape your characterization of these characters, especially since they're so different? Yeah. So yes, none of the stuff in the book uh, that I, I make happen to these characters ever happened to me. And it was a lot of fun in uh, a sadistic way almost to, to make them go through these uh, harrowing events and, you know, also fun events too, I guess. But um, I do feel like this is a world that's familiar to me. I don't quite have a friend who I've known since the second grade, like these women do, but I, I do have a circle of close friends from, you know, about, I was 13 or 14. So junior high, freshman year in high school, that I'm still very close friends with. And because it's been so long with these women, we've really grown up together. We've had times where we fell apart and like didn't talk for years, but uh, we always managed to come back together. So, you know, so some of my real life friendships and the fights and the closeness that I've experienced with these women uh, emotionally have, have, you know, made their way in the book, even if our particular stories haven't. I'm so intrigued by that. And that's one of the things I love about the book is how you show that ebb and flow of their relationship, because many of the stories take place without the other. And I think this is such an interesting part of a long-term friendship is how much, you know, you don't experience the other, yet you can remain close in a more fundamental way, or you return to that closeness after drifting apart, perhaps. And so I'm curious, did writing the novel, and I'm putting novel in quotes here, mm -hmm. uh, through individual stories, like help you explore that aspect of friendship? Um, you know, how friends change and move yet stay with each other at the same time? Yeah, definitely. You know, so one of the things that I've been saying as I've been doing uh, interviews for the book is that I didn't quite know that I was even writing a book when I started. You know, I just was writing stories and I felt that I wanted to, you know, the first story I wrote was one in which both characters were present. And then I wanted to 
just get to know each of them individually more. I felt like I wasn't done with this universe yet. And so from that, from the first story, which was the movers, then I began to write other individual stories. And one of the things that sort of organically came out in the writing of the book was there was this long period of separation where Fiona moves to New York. She has her life in New York and Jane is still in Los Angeles. And both of them are sort of living their separate lives and, you know, they're not really in touch, but there's, in the book, there's not really a reason. There wasn't like this big, huge split or like a huge plot point where they got into a fight or anything like that. And, you know, that was also very much inspired by Sula, which also has um, a huge gap in the friendship between Sula and Nell, where Sula goes away and she eventually comes back. And in my book, Fiona eventually comes back. And like you said, Grant, you know, they do have to figure out how to be friends as adults and not just rely on that intimacy and closeness they had as as young girls. And I think that's really in, like interesting because the people were, we think we know the best. Sometimes we have the hardest time seeing how they're different, how they've changed. Mm, especially if you've known them over time. And I, yeah, I mean, there's so much to unpack here. And you also uh, talk about the aspect um, of the distance or differences. Um, you capture things like rivalry, comparison to one another and class differences. And in one story, uh, just for the sake of our listenership, you write, in truth, didn't Fiona believe her life, the choices she made possible for herself, superior to Jane's, the odd jobs Jane worked and often lost carelessly after they graduated high school? Of course, Jane didn't really have to work, did she? Her mother always floated her money anyway. And yet they love each other, despite these darker interior thoughts. And so I'd love to hear how you thought about shaping these stories around that tension of differences and comparisons. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Just hearing you read that quote, even though I wrote it, I just felt like a chill. It's so (laughs) cruel. It's so cruel, isn't it? Um, And somebody who you love so much you can also um, project so much onto them, right? And so in that moment, uh, Fiona is just reflecting on the fact that in her family, she is the older sister, you know, and she has always taken on part-time work, even when she was, you know, in high school and because she had to help out her family financially. And she was always very ambitious and driven and but how much of that is is by an economic or class need versus just you know how much of that is her own personality and she's in that moment reflecting and sort of judging the fact that uh, Jane comes from a much more privileged background so in a way it's it's a way for Fiona to to have some sort of um moral superiority over her best friend, right? And I hate to admit it, but I think that um, that's not an unfamiliar feeling to me and, you know, uh, hopefully not to others that, you know, you, you have a friend who you love so much, but for whatever reason, you, you're judging their life choices, right? So I wanted to have moments in the book where um, each each woman is seen considering her best friend's life choices 
in indifference to her own and that sort of longing as well as resentment that can brew in those in those dark spaces. It's really interesting. Comparison is a key part of friendship. And I'm curious also about, you know, the way the structure of the book kind of follows the setting of the stories as well. Um, and the setting to, you know, stories take place in Los Angeles, New York, and Taipei. You know, those stories explore that kind of push and pull of home, which affects their friendship. So I was curious about your relationship to these places that the stories are set in and how did this triangle of places shape the narrative? Yeah, well, I'm based in L.A. now. Uh, as you mentioned in the intro, I am a grad student at USC, so I'm I'm working on my doctorate. So, And I grew up in Southern California. I grew up in the suburbs uh, just outside of the city, and um, my parents are still here. And so Southern California is uh, a very familiar place to me. And my family heritage is from Taiwan or from the Chinese diaspora. And so I was born in Taiwan. Most of my family still lives in Taiwan. So I do go back there to see my family every few years. And so I have a lot of... um, sort of like memories and real life experiences to draw from for those stories. And as for New York, um, I I lived there for just a couple of years when I was in my 20s. And, you know, I couldn't hack it because Hmm. um, as a person who grew up in SoCal, the winters were just so harsh for me. So I had to move back after a couple of years. But I made Fiona a little more tough than than I was. So she lives in New York for about 10 years, but eventually she comes back with her tail between her legs too. So now I love to visit New York and it's, it's a lot of fun to see friends there. So um, those are all places where I've had personal experience. So it was fun to draw from memories and to write from real life in that sense. You know, we talk a lot about a writer's mindset on this podcast, and you said in an interview, there was, I'm going to read your words again, (laughs) get ready to get chills. There was a time in my life when I was really dismissive of my own efforts and my own ambitions when it came to writing or anything else in life, really, I would say whatever, you know, if things happen, it's meant to be, or if not, it's not meant to be. So I'm assuming you're not so dismissive now, or I hope so. And I'd love for you to share, you know, if there was a mindset shift that you experienced and, you know, what has it been like to have so much buzz around this new novel? Yeah. Oh my gosh. I don't know. I think that um, to be a writer, I'll just, I don't know how other writers feel about this, but to me, it felt like such, um, it was I don't even know how to describe this. It felt, I don't want to say it felt like a luxury or an indulgence because I don't want to say that books or writing isn't a necessary part of life because I do believe it is. But, you know, growing up, I I didn't know any writers. You know, I didn't know that that was a thing that one could do. And so, you know, before we started recording, uh, we were chatting and I was saying how everything feels a little bit surreal still. You know, my book just has been out for a week, but part of me still can't believe in a way that I even have a book that I've even managed to sell this manuscript because I worked on it just, you know, 
for so long, for years, without really believing that it could be a book out in the world. So, you know, your question was about whether I had some sort of shift when it came to that. I think that, um, as I said in that interview that you're that you're quoting from, I started seeing a therapist a couple of years ago, and I I had sort of, I started seeing her because um, I was really stressed out <laughs> from my PhD program, so I needed some support in managing my stress and anxiety. And then, you know, of course, we got into lots of things about my childhood and history of my relationship with my parents and my family. And one of the things we discovered was that I I felt really uncomfortable even naming that I deserved something that I could say, oh, I want this thing. I want to go after it. And what my therapist pointed out to me was like, you know, you have this, you have this tendency to, to sort of act nonchalant as a, as a defense, I think, you know, and, you know, she wasn't, she wasn't wrong about that. And so through working with her, I, I began to see that I don't always have to make everything a joke. You know, I think that I like to, (laughs) I like to crack jokes and not take things so seriously, but it's okay to do that. And it's okay to say, you know, I want this. And it's scary to say that because it actually means that you're being vulnerable, you know? So yeah, I would say that the shift happened because I really started to to look at myself and it, it, it didn't just have um, a transformation in the way that I saw writing. It really had a, a transformation in, in how I saw lots of other things in my life too. So Shout out to my therapist. <laughs> no, thanks for sharing that. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing that, Gina. It was a fascinating story. And, you know, one of the things, I don't know, I found this, we talk about it a lot on the show, and, and I found it in talking about with writers for years and years is is sort of a sheepishness or, or difficulty just saying, I'm a writer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that that moment when you claim that, you know, a lot of people feel like you can't claim saying that until you've published something. So I'm just, I'm just curious what your, what is your relation to, to saying I'm a writer? Do you say it now or did you wait until your book was published or did you feel that after, you know, talking with your therapist and kind of exploring those, those feelings or those hesitations? Oof. Um, wow. That's a really great question. I do say that I'm a writer now and I don't know this, this is such a complicated uh, question because part of part of what allows me to to feel confident in saying that I am a writer is because I have you know things that have been published my writing has been published so that's sort of like quote unquote evidence or proof that I am a writer and so in that sense yeah I guess you know having this external validation is useful but Another part of me, I think a large part of me wants to think about being a writer outside of that, you know, as what I was talking about with um, learning that I'm allowed to name my desire and to say that I want to do things and go after things and that I deserve happiness and joy, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, I think what's tied into that idea of being a writer is also that we're like depressed alcoholics okay maybe not alcoholics but definitely like macabre 
uh, people. And there's like sort of a romanticizing of the depressed writer too. And, you know, I don't know if that's true for everyone, but it was true for me. Like part of the reason why I didn't want to go to therapy amongst other reasons is that I was like, well, if she fixes me and helps me become happy, then what, what do I have to write about? And that's, as I've discovered, it's totally not true. So yes, I do call myself a writer now. I don't, I can't pinpoint the exact moment when I started feeling comfortable with it, but um, it's, it's, it's a part of that process of looking at myself and examining my ability to take up space and to say that um, I can claim this identity, even if there's no outside validation of it. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing all that. It's always an interesting question for me. I'm going to shift topics a little bit here. Um, I admire fiction writers who are also academics because it's such a rare thing. And and I, I'm not personally an academic, but I but I like reading the occasional literary theory. But it's always fascinating to me how when I when I go in that direction, um, how it actually does change the way I write. And so I'm curious um, how your academic brain mixes with your creative brain, or even if you think of it like that. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think with my fiction. You know, I do believe that, um, you know, every artistic endeavor is political. You know, what we choose to write about, the people we choose to represent in our fiction and the situations we put them in, um, they're inherently political, you know, because we're as artists, we don't write in a vacuum. And so I am aware of the sort of stories I want to make in the world, but I don't want to write that with a specific agenda or come off as dogmatic in any way, because oftentimes that won't make for an interesting story. I think that you have to make your fictional characters do some strange and messed up stuff to one another. That's not, uh, that's not going to be pleasant for them. And, you know, you can't just write characters who are like, quote unquote, politically correct all the time, you know, or who only have political views that you agree with. So even though I am interested in studying race and class and gender, sexuality and other social identities through fiction, you know, that's not the primary starting point for me. So um, it's great that I have this other outlet through academia to explore more pointedly, you know, those types of academic writers or, um, you know, other texts and uh, whether it's gender theory, racial, critical race theory, Asian American history, those are all ways that inform my thinking. But the way that it comes into my fiction, I feel like it's it's more organic, you know, um, in theory, when I started my PhD program, I had such a hard time because I was just, you know, it's the kind of thing where, at least for me, I have to read it two or three times to even understand or begin to understand what this theorist is trying to get across. And so one of my uh, sort of joke methodologies for reading theory is that you have to read it and then you have to take a nap at some point and let your brain sort of <laughs> marinate in that way. So maybe that's part of my, that's part of my process for how my academic work and my um, scholarly interests filter into my fiction is through taking a nap and being scrambled up <laughs> in my brain that way. 
I happen to be a big believer in the creative nap. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much for joining us, Gene. We'll, we'll end on this recommendation for writers to take naps and process <laughs> things. We need it. It counts as writing if you know you go to sleep thinking about something in your work, and then you wake up, something will come out. We'll be right back with today's book trend. I was taken by a recent article in the Times that was all about the value of the pitch, and I thought this might be an interesting take on our trend—a combo advice trend, which we sometimes offer. The, the, you know, the article was called "Best-Selling Debut Novels Are the Bald Eagles of the Book World," and the piece of advice uh, dispensed by Robert Jones Jr., who's the author of *The Profits*, was. Sounds simple, but be sure you know what your book is about—not just plot-wise, but its larger themes and socio-political perspectives, how it fits into particular literary traditions, and what impact you hope it has on readers and why. You should have a prepared elevator pitch that will come in handy. So, Brooke, coming out of the publishing world like you do, what do you think about this piece of advice? And do you think the right pitch, in and of itself, has anything to do with an author's success? You know, in a way, I do, yes,、uh, because a pitch isn't just about figuring out the right wording. It's about message, and it's about delivery of that message. It's about the passion of the author's commitment, and it's also about the consistency of that pitch and what the message,、uh, you know, how the message resonates over a lot of different mediums and the ways that the author delivers it. So, when an author speaks, you know, the back cover copy, the Amazon description, there's all these moments that you're getting your message out, and you know, certainly we know about how this works in politics, and we give a lot of kudos to those candidates who stay on message and they sell the message, and in That way, books are similar. You know, you are trying to sell the message and have readers think to themselves, "Well, that's something I need or want to know more about, or need or want to consume."、Um, so, yeah, I, I definitely think this is as pertinent for something like self-help as it is fiction. Yeah, I agree. And, and coincidentally, I want to say that that every year, including this one, Nanorimo teams with the book doctors who are Erelex Sutton, David Henry Sterry, and 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 they put on this this、uh, amazing online version of Ariel and David's famous Pitchapalooza, which is like a super fun event if you ever get a chance to see it live. But it's also super fun online. And we post we'll post info about it on our blog, and and we publicize it in our newsletters and email communications throughout the month of February.、Uh, so if you're interested in、um, try, even just trying out your pitch, I think like good pitching takes practice actually. So so just join in the the fray. It's it's pretty fun and casual and nothing to to lose.、Um, but back to the Times article, which is saying essentially that these debut bestsellers are rare birds. That it's you know so hard to break out on a first. Novel, and obviously this is true. And I imagine every single debut author, you know, they imagine it could be them.、Uh, and there, <laughs> there's always that possibility in book publishing, which is why we've said so often that it has a little bit of magic in the mix. Yeah, and it could be any debut author, but I think、um, you know why this could be a trend for framing it as such. Is that、uh, the fact that the author has a lot of work to do, right? The author is as responsible for the success of his or her book、uh, as the publisher, and never has this been more true than it is today. And publishers, you know, they used to take on a lot more responsibility of breaking their authors out, but I feel like today's publishers are saying we want the authors to do that, you know, to do the heavy lifting. And so the publisher is leaning in 
into the authors networks, engaging the authors to be socially active on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, to say yes to everything, (laughs) speaking Mm -hmm. engagements, book clubs. So it's grueling. So yeah, you know, they're rare birds, but they're also rare birds who are working their tail feathers off. So, you know, it's not like a happy accident. Well said, and and not every author has the capacity or the personality or the network or the je ne sais quoi quality, and that's something that's not often discussed in polite circles, but certainly marketing teams are having that conversation. Yeah, indeed they are, and uh, it just goes back to the fact that this is a new era of book publishing. I mean, it's a new era that's been around for a couple decades, but still, um, it is about the book and the story, but it's about author platform as well and the author is going to drive the book's success so that's the real trend and has been the case for a while um with that (laughs) authors and aspiring authors and writers do not despair uh you can get yourself out there too you know just a reminder to start small start early Uh, and one of the ways to stay inspired along the journey is by listening to this show so you know we're bringing you right-minded inspiration week in and week out we're super thrilled to do so we appreciate that you listen maybe share this episode and others with a friend we appreciate you getting the word out there too thank you and we'll see you next week good pitch brooke (laughs) 